Khan Academy Digital Sessions. Conversations on the legal topics affecting businesses and individuals today. In this episode, what are the greatest challenges facing horse racing in 2022? Are there lessons the British Horse Racing Authority has learned from other regulators in terms of handling high-profile conduct issues? And what impact, if any, has the pandemic had upon the sport's longevity? We'll also discuss what the UK horse racing regulator, the British Horse Racing Authority, is doing to adjust to the shifting expectations of regulation in the sporting industry. Hello, and welcome to Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions podcast. I'm Al Agnew, an associate at Mishcon de Rare, specialising in private commercial litigation and part of the politics and law group. Also here today, we have Neil Bayliss, who is a partner in the competition and regulatory team at Mishcon, and Tim Naylor. Tim is Director of Integrity and Regulation at the British Horse Racing Authority, and Tim was previously a barrister at QEB Hollis Whiteman Chambers, where he got a taste for the racing rulebook, having been instructed on several occasions by the BHA in relation to disciplinary and licensing disputes. Tim, it's been a busy year from a regulatory perspective in the racing world. What do you see as the sport's greatest challenges in 2022? I think there are three probably primary challenges, although there's a host of issues as there are in any sport. I think for us, first and foremost, will be continuing discussions and debates around equine welfare, something that is incredibly important to the sport that we need to try and change the perhaps social perception of the way in which we have horses for entertainment in sport. You know, horses are our number one priority and, and always will be. So I think we need to focus very much on that. Secondly, Sadly, as we all know, we're still coming out with the pandemic at the moment. And therefore, from a financial commercial perspective, it's unclear what the long-term economic effects are going to be on the sport. I think we need to be innovative, maximize our industry revenues. We're competing now with sports that have really grappled with this issue themselves and emerged in a better place after the pandemic. Thirdly, as I think everyone's aware, we've had a recent high-profile case into the, the cultural issues in the sport. And it's something that's that's tied anyway to our work around the welfare of our participants. But we really need to focus on on the culture of the sport, um, how we look after our participants, but also in the wider industry, how we, we treat our, our staff and the many thousands of people that, that work in the sport. Mm-hmm. And you kind of mentioned that there have been challenges over the last two years because of the pandemic. Are you confident of the future of the sport in the UK? And... If you could bring about one change to the current rules to facilitate that, what would it be? I am confident. I think the one the one thing that racing has shown is the ability to adapt and change during the pandemic. Um, I think we were one of the first sports, if not the first sport, to start again. Um, as I think the 1st of June in 2020 behind closed doors. And we were able to adapt quite quickly to see that without crowds. Resisted with a strong sort of commercial media base already, and of course levy betting revenues. And I think that will that will hold us strong for going now out of the pandemic in 2022. For me, though, in terms of the the rules and our our structures, what I would like to see is us perhaps move in a direction that other sports have done, like football and basketball, where we have a stronger arbitration and mediation tribunal. Because horse racing is a sport where Disputes happen quite often, particularly between owners uh, and trainers, for example, around you know, the purchase of horses, sale of horses, training agreements, whatever it might be. And I think it would really assist our participants, now we're in a more litigious world, if actually we can resolve some of those disputes within the sport in a more cost-effective manner 
as has been done quite successfully, I would say, in, in other sports. That's really interesting. Would it be its own kind of tribunal? How would you see that kind of setup working? Well, I think we're, we're very fortunate because we have now the Independent Judicial Panel, which was a great thing to bring in post the Quinlan Review, which we had in horse racing quite a few years ago now, which meant that we, for the first time, it was a tribunal that was at arm's length from the BHA and quite appropriately so in the regulatory context. Mm -hmm. But that also is a very useful place, I would say, for these sort of disputes where particularly small trainers and small owners, you know, they might be waiting years otherwise through civil litigation to get a resolution and it's never going to be happy. Both parties are going to go to extreme costs and it doesn't resolve things. And actually the possibility of arbitration or mediation at an early stage would really help with those sort of issues. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. <laughs> is that up and running already or is that something which is planned for the future then? It's in, it's in conversation mm. at the moment. Raised it certainly with, we're very fortunate to have Brian Barker, the ex-recorder of London, who is our judicial panel chair. And we have a new independent non-executive director, Raj Parker, who has considerable experience from the basketball arbitral tribunal, but also from tennis and football. So I'm hoping that between us, we're able to, to bring this model to fruition reasonably quickly yeah. although um <laughs> we've been in conversation about something like this for a while a while <laughs> so we will see yeah i think it'd be great great for the sport if that could could be introduced i can see a real benefit for as you say those people perhaps at the slightly lower end of the sport who do are just never going to be able to uh, afford full-on civil litigation and yet you know, obviously disputes do arise yeah i mean it's not going to get rid of every issue and particularly in the sort of the bloodstock world no. where transactions you know could be incredibly valuable but it will assist and, you know, it will help to at least reduce the, the costs, particularly for our trainers, actually, who perhaps have been hit the hardest throughout the pandemic by the effects uh, economically. And in some cases, it's been a, been a struggle to keep going. The last thing they need is expensive litigation and often perhaps have avoided it because they just don't want to get into that, that realm. Yeah. Um, so I think it's something that we, we should be looking at. Oh, good luck with that. So you touched on it a minute ago, but there have been a number of high-profile conduct issues, notably the Bryony Frost and Robbie Dunn case, which was reported on in December last year, but also across the sporting industry. So for those who don't know, Bryony Frost, who is one of the UK's most successful female jump jockeys, accused fellow jockey Robbie Dunn of bullying and harassment and made wider allegations concerning an issue of sexism in the sport. Are there any lessons that the BHA has taken away from how other sports have handled cases? For example, maybe the ECB's handling of the Yorkshire County Cricket Club, although that's probably not a good example. <laughs> it's interesting, yeah, you know, await sort of developments with cricket in particular, and that's sort of an ongoing issues. If anything, it's a, it's a lesson for us all, and hindsight's a wonderful thing, is to try and see those issues and, and deal with them as early as possible and, and recognize when there are issues clearly that's something in in racing that we've we've had to look at in the last year in the frost done case which is still under appeal at the moment so i'll be slightly slightly careful in, in what i say but what what i would say is that you know that's a case in which we had a very incredibly brave female jockey who's incredibly successful on the course uh, and to come forward with the allegations that she did it was important for the bha to supporter and to actually bring that case was a possibly a, a watershed moment for the sport that we can now use to to look at all areas of, of our culture as a sport our inclusivity and also issues around our diversity as well but fundamentally how we 
treat each other. And that starts with simple things like code of conduct, clearly issues around weighing rooms and change of facilities, which which is being worked upon, but I think it's fair to say hasn't developed quickly enough. And we will look at other sports for for help with, with that. It's been impressive, I think, over recent years, the shift from perhaps focusing on pure performance, be it gold medal tallies, whatever it might be, to now put in athletes' welfare central in that process. Yes, of course, you still want success, and ultimately that's what drives any competitive performance sport. But equally, it's about listening to the athlete's voice and, and, and hearing what the participants of your sport are, are saying. I think some sports have been doing very well with the inclusivity aspects. I think football, in fairness, perhaps belatedly, but it is doing very well with women's football and taking it to a new commercial level. And actually the same with women's rugby. The RFU bringing in professional contracts is clear what's followed in terms of the performances of the of the England women's team. And being a Welshman, it's, it's nice to actually see that the WIU are finally taking a step in the right direction there as well. And it's great that in a way that's been, that's been forced, not necessarily because of someone thinking we've got to tick a box or, or it's the right thing to do, even though it is, but actually because of performance reasons. And what's been clear is Wales have been left behind on the rugby pitch and now professionalism is slowly catching up in Wales. And I hope that's a, a trend that, that follows. In racing, we're fortunate that men and women have competed equally, in inverted commas, for quite some time on the race course in terms of the actual structure of the race itself now we need to catch up behind the scenes and actually make sure that that is actually an equal playing field for for men and women it's interesting do you think that the fact that it is in theory equal in that men and women compete together has actually been one of the reasons why it's been slower to modernize because there hasn't been the same direct focus on women within the sport they're kind of everyone's thought of as a as a group Potentially. And I think that's both a compliment and a criticism to the sport, because perhaps the the industry has been perhaps naive and perhaps looked at it and said, well, we don't have an issue here because look, men and women are competing equally and look at the fantastic female riders, female trainers, female owners that we have. And actually, it's, it takes a step back to look at the, the wider picture and actually say, well, yeah, that's great on the one hand. But there's clearly more we should be doing, and there clearly are problems, and we can't we can't close our eyes to that. So, is there a positive strategy to encourage more women to to take up horse racing? Because I, I know my wife's very keen horsewoman, but more on the dressage side of things, where basically women actually do better than men in terms of the certainly the, the national squad. Uh, if you look at the, the results, amazing achievements that women have made in dressage, and uh, yeah, slightly less so in horse racing. As you say, there's plenty of female jockeys now, but is there a sort of active plan to, to say look this is great in a way that formula one traditionally you know very much aware of the fact that it's very male but they're trying to bring in women's racing and just get more women into it to increase the opportunities and get them the experience they need to get to the very top level yeah i mean we we clearly have some incredibly successful female jockeys and the success of likes of well Bryony, but also holly doyle from ireland of course rachel as well shows that we do have great women riders who come and make it through to the top end of the sport. I guess the when you look at the lens of that, you're really looking at the number, actually, of female riders and what's the issue there. And we do have, we have a number of, of groups, both within the BHA, but also in the wider industry, that's looking 
for example, generally at our diversity and our inclusivity. And for me, it's a question of analyzing this very carefully, because actually you're right, particularly at a young age, there are a huge amount of girls, young women who are riding, who are competitive, particularly in the point-to-point area, but yet perhaps are dropping off once they become apprentice conditionals and then into becoming full professionals. So we need to analyze, well, what are the blockers there? What's stopping women being retained in the sport? And we ultimately need to speak to our jockeys, which we're, we're doing to understand those issues if they, if they exist. So I'm confident, hopefully, we will address those, but it will, will take some time. So one of the things we've talked a little bit about is regulating conduct and the kind of public perception of the sport. And I know that recently there was the John Gosling case and Bob Baffert in the US, who are two high-profile trainers who have been sanctioned as a result of failed drugs tests on winners, as well as the recent Panorama program and the issue with Gordon Elliott last year. So I was just wondering if the BHA is working proactively to manage its public perception of the sport, and if so, how it's going about that. Yes, we have a very good communications department within the the BHA itself, and we have a marketing arm, Great British Racing, and they have done a huge amount of work on the public perception of the sport. One of the challenges we we face is that we have a it, it is a traditional sport fundamentally, and people within the sport have strong views and passionate views, and perhaps sometimes don't appreciate that we often need to target that wider audience. Because if we go back to those challenges that we're talking about and the commercial realities of sport, well, actually, we do need to sell horse racing to a, to a wider audience or at least have people feel comfortable with it. And the, the high profile issues you've mentioned don't help with that, particularly from a welfare perspective, because whilst, you know, 99.9% of our trainers, our owners and certainly our jockeys treat horses with absolute respect and dignity that they deserve you have that very small percent that that can cause problems and as much as we can say the horse comes first and i have a whole team dedicated to investigating these sort of issues sadly sadly they do and really it's difficult for us in britain because the two you've mentioned um in fact three possibly that you mentioned are all out of our jurisdiction bob baffert for example gordon elliott and it shows now the global nature of our sport. And one of the things we will want to look at going forward is, well, how do we improve actually that global perspective of the sport? How can we work with other jurisdictions to in, to improve that? Do you think that other jurisdictions have the same kind of issues with public perception? Or do you think it's something which is inherent to the UK racing industry? I think most jurisdictions will have similar issues, particularly from a welfare perspective. Culturally, society has changed perhaps and developed different views from even 10, 20 years ago, but particularly before that, and in how people view the role of animals in in sport. And so we all share that issue, and that's something that we have to be joined up upon. And in fairness, we are. So we're often in conversation with our counterparts in Ireland in particular, but in, in France, and a lot of us in the BHA are members of the the International Federation of Horse Racing Authorities, we sit on their committees so that we can try and harmonise our rules and our approaches to these things. It's easier for some than others. Hong Kong Jockey Club have it perhaps easier in terms of just the way they're structured. But in Australia, for example, the Melbourne Cup has come in for a huge amount of media attention. You know, it's the race that stops a nation, but even that has come in for scrutiny from the media. So we, we do need to work with our international colleagues to, to look at these issues. 
And do you think there are specific lessons which you need to take away or key things that you've taken away from how other regulators in other countries are doing things? Different jurisdictions obviously do things in, in different ways and have certain advantages. I think the key one for me that I would like to develop is in Australia, for example. You know, they have a, a very good integrity set up generally in sport. So they now have their national integrity unit. I think it's Integrity Australia. But before that, they had their own police force, at least in Victoria, that was dedicated to sports corruption as a small example. We don't have that in the UK. We don't have anything similar to those sort of things. It's very difficult for us when we're looking at integrity issues and corruption issues. The Gambling Commission is supposed to be our national platform, yet aside from some individuals who are very, very good and very passionate in their investigative unit, from a policy perspective, we don't get assistance from the Gambling Commission in that area. Now, that's under review and the Gambling Act really will look at those issues. But for me, that's one of the key things we, we have to look at is how do we get that greater support? Because sports can't do it alone. We're fortunate we are relatively well resourced compared to other sports. But smaller sports, how, how do they monitor the integrity of their sports properly? How do they get assistance in areas, for us, for example, with alcohol and welfare, if there isn't those greater national governmental organisations there to assist? So it needs some, some lobbying work in the... Uh... There is some lobbying work going <laughs> some on. Some lobbying um, work in the offing. <laughs> that's for sure. And, and we have an opportunity at the moment to re redress this. You know, the Gambling Commission, the Gambling Act at the time was fantastic and everyone was very optimistic about it. And for certain aspects, particularly around um, the regulation of gambling, helping out with problem gambling and those sort of issues, the Gambling Commission is fantastic. But in my view, they were never really set up to also then assist with monitoring and policing the integrity of sports. I think there's roles yeah. for an organisation to do that. And it's a common thread across Regulation generally is regulators being asked to take on new roles, but actually not being given the resources to do that with. You know, we're seeing that same with Ofcom being asked to mm -hmm. now monitor online content. It's a, a huge task suddenly to be given. Unless there's staff to do that, it's not going to be done particularly well with the best one in the world. And I can see challenges for the Gambling Commission as well being asked to get involved in integrity issues for horse racing, where you know without the right expertise and the right number of people. It's, it's difficult, isn't it? So, yeah, it's, it's a common thread, I think, across the world of regulation as there's more, more demands are put upon the regulators to do more things. Standards increase, you know, rightly so. We have to learn how best to adapt and who's the best person to do certain things. Yes, in fairness, we, we have a similar, similar problem, as I'm sure a lot of my colleagues in other sports have, which is your, your mandate just keeps increasing. You know, there's a time in which the BHA really was probably the, the leader in sports betting and corruption integrity type investigations and issues. And I hope we, we still are. But actually now, when I look at the work that my team does, we're not talking about just investigating somebody pressing a lay bet on a, on a horse on the Betfair exchange. We now could be dealing with betters in the Far East in offshore regulation. We've had cases with people in Dubai or India. Suddenly, Whose responsibility is it to, to police betting on British racing when that betting could be taking place anywhere in the world? Similarly, rightly or wrongly, safeguarding wasn't something the BHA even looked at prior to probably around 2017-18 when we brought in our regulations. Yet it's now central to what we do, and importantly, and it just shows now the scale of what a regulator has to cover. <laughs> All the traditional issues remain. And they remain. Just add to it every year. So and, something becomes a priority. And the budgets don't, don't increase with it, you know, which is common for any regulator. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, that's interesting to hear that. Thank you. I guess that kind of ties in a little bit to the Freddie Tlitsky and Graham Giddens case in that, so the High Court has just found that there was negligent, I think it was negligent riding. And I guess it's interesting from a kind of safety and liability perspective that the court has now got involved in a case like that. And do you think that will impact, that decision will impact on kind of the way stewards handle cases like that going forward on race day? And yeah, what impact is that going to have on the sport? It's one of those cases which, going back to the conversation we had about the need for arbitration, is the time for civil litigation to work its way through the system. And we've already brought in a number of changes to our stewarded model, not because of this incident, but because things need to develop over time. We have a new professional steward model. We have different ways in which we would deal with inquiries where there's a serious injury, such as sadly in, in that case. For me, it's going to be interesting to see the impact of, of this case and other cases that we're bound to see over the next couple of years. Things like uh, around concussion, for example, in a number of different sports and what that means for participant safety going forward, what it means for insurance, for example. They're all going to have a, uh, an impact. So I don't think just one case necessarily is, is going to have a significant impact. I think what we're going to see is, is case after case in this area around participant safety and welfare that are crucial to how we, we work and move forward. And it goes back to other points perhaps we've already discussed today, which is putting the participant, the athlete at the centre of these conversations and discussions now and, and, and listening to them so that hopefully we can as far as you ever can in, in, let's be frank, high-risk sports such as horse racing, but, but others. But as far as possible, you can make um, those sports as safe as you as you can. We've been looking at the issue of mental health and sports for another client, haven't we, yeah. Al? And um, it's, which has come to the fore, I think, in relatively recent years, people acknowledging the fact that professional sports bursts are under huge stress. And um, no one really spoken about what impact that has on you as an individual. So... I think the opportunity to have some sort of helplines, a method of, of release if someone's just feeling it's all getting too much and they don't feel they can talk to their employer because it's a sign of weakness, but having for the BHA to be able to offer some kind of service, I mean, so it's not counselling, but it's a method of expressing concerns, which is, I think, usually helpful, whether it's the jockeys or trainers who are under huge pressure, as well as, as, as you said, giving you an insight into what problems there are out there and thinking, well, Maybe we should do some industry-wide guidance or you know, give give people a, a bit of help in these areas with some training, whatever it may be. But I think I'm really pleased to see it's actually coming to the fore as a topic that people can discuss as opposed to just you know, physical welfare of, of a horse or physical welfare of a jockey and, and the sort of more uh, sort of two-dimensional view of, of people and animals. Yeah, it's... um. I mean, there's been lots of developments in my time at the BHA, but I think one of the most important is the focus now on mental health, mental health in sport. You're right, horse racing is, it can be a dangerous sport. And therefore, people tend to focus on the, the physical injuries that jockeys might suffer as a result of, of falls. But actually, the mental impact is just as important and can, in, in some cases, be 100 times worse than the actual physical fall itself. We're fortunate that we have a number of great racing charities who provide assistance, racing welfare, being primary in, in those. But I think we as the BHA have also, I hope, um, stepped up in this regard. To give you a small example, you know, some of the criticism we get around our cases and investigations is in relation to delay. And that impacts both the complainant and the respondent. 
And it's something that we are looking at very, very closely, and particularly the support that we provide on all sites so that it's not not just for our, our complainants and making sure that they're supported, but also for our, our respondents as well, and that the, that the process can be finalised far quicker for them, but with appropriate um, support mechanisms in place as well. Have you thought about rolling out any kind of employment practice, mental health? Because my experience from the equestrian world is that probably some of the greatest issues arise on yards, you know, on the big training yards where there are so many people and there's a lot of young people working on them. And as much as I'm sure most of the trainers try and do their best, there's not actually that much emotional support in what are quite formative years of people's lives. Has the BHA thought about doing some kind of employment training or putting policies in place which have to be applied more generally? We have a a people team within the BHA who look at employment issues on the the yards. And you're right, of course, that primarily the trainer is the employer and so the onus is on them. But I think it's right that we set certain standards. And I think one of them now has to be in relation to mental health support. I think Going forward, one of the things that we really need to look at is the, is actually the role of young people on yards in the industry because people are attracted to horse racing for lots of reasons, maybe to ride, someone to be the next Brani Frost or AP McCoy, whoever it might be. Some are looking for a career and we need to make sure that we provide pathways and we properly develop people uh, and we look after them in the process. And that has to be hand in hand, the BHA and individual trainers so that we provide that support network. In the apprentice and conditional area, we are constantly looking at ways to improve those pathways for young people into the sport. Um, We're hoping to roll out some more reforms next year, which start to actually put the participant, the young person themselves, right at the centre. And the primary goal being their development, be it they'll be the next professional jockey, the next Frankie Dottori, or actually, sadly, they're not good enough in which case we will support them and look to keep them in the industry. Because one of our challenges is staff retention and keeping people in the sport, be it at the highest level or or be it just working on yards. We need to make sure that we retain people and look after them. Great, thanks. Well, I'm sad to say that our time is up, so we'll have to wrap up there. But I'd like to say a big thank you to our guest, Tim Naylor for joining me and Neil on this Meet the Regulators podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. Tim, we wish you all the best with BHA's projects in the year ahead. Sounds like there's lots to do. I'm Al Agnew and do look out for the next episode in the series. The Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions are a series of online events, videos and podcasts, all available at mishcon.com. And if you have any questions you'd like answered or suggestions you'd like us to cover, do let us know at digitalsessions at mishcon.com. The Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions. To access advice for businesses that is regularly updated, please visit mishcon.com.